0: Well, good evening. Thank you, Jim, for for getting us started. (laughs) Good evening. evening. Excellent. Good night. If you're here for Hebrew, you're in the right place. Uh, If you're here for something else, you'll just have to pretend that you're here for Hebrew now. Um, uh, Hebrew words every Christian should know. Thank you for coming out. It's uh, cold. It's dark. Uh, There was a a real prospect of this room being very cold. I think we're actually at a a good kind of temperature. So I'm really pleased that you have made it. Uh, Hopefully, each of you have got a handout. I am ridiculously pleased with my handout because it folds over into a nice booklet that you can use. It's even got interesting colours and things involved. Okay, uh, at the back though, there is uh, plenty of space for thoughts. Uh, there may be lots of question marks that you decide to write in there, or maybe questions for later. That's fine. Um, but hopefully, uh, this will be of use to you. <clears throat> if, however, you lose your handout, it's okay um, because uh, on the church website. Under the heading Fellowship and House Groups, i.e. if you click on Fellowship and House Groups, uh, the notes are there in a digital form as well. Okay, so if you want to pass that on or let someone else know that it's there, then that's where they're going to be popping up every week. Also, if you happen to miss a week, which is absolutely fine, they're, they're all stand-alone weeks, um, I very much believe that if you come to this and you learn four words, excellent, that's four more words than you had previously. If you come the next week and you get another few words, excellent. And if you miss one, it's okay, come to the one that comes after, you know, and the the handouts will be up there. And if you have questions, then always feel free. That's my introductory uh, introductory ramble uh, to start off with. Uh, But my intention over the next five weeks is to look at 24 Hebrew words, uh, now, I'm not trying to teach you the Aleph bits, uh, you know, and, and, and the, the basic grammar. It's something a bit bigger than that. Uh, you see, I want to really look at that key words, uh, concepts, ideas that really underpin the Old Testament. And if we grasp them, chances are we'll better understand our Old Testament. That's, that's the goal. So, <clears throat> I'm going to do it under five headings. And uh, in case some of you are wondering... I have a whole second lot of classes of five more headings to be, you know, depending on how well this goes, you know. Uh, but it starts off with the names matter. That's really the names of God, the titles that God has given, uh, as well as his name. Uh, sovereignty matters. Uh, love matters. Law matters and cleanliness matters. These are the, the, the areas that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. Uh, some of them um, are quite good, to, you know, like the, the titles and names you just kind of look throughout. Uh, for some of them with sovereignty, it's actually just one key verse and all the words in that verse and it's a verse which is hopelessly misunderstood until sometimes we grasp what it actually says. So that's kind of how it breaks down. Now I have to say, when it came to choosing just 24 words, that wasn't easy. (laughs) That was actually quite hard. Um, I'm sure that if someone else was to choose the terms, there might be a slightly different collection. But the words that follow had to be chosen with this reason. I mean, I could have just looked at the most frequently used words. I could say, well, we'll just look at the most frequently used words. Uh, that's an easy exercise in arithmetic. And the most common words would have been selected. And then the top five would be these. All of you know he and with. <laughs> 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 not a lot of yes, you know. You go out here going, well, I can recognise the word no in Hebrew. But you know, that's not, that's not really the purpose. The purpose is to find the words that make a real difference in your life, in your reading of the Bible, how you see God and what we understand of God. And um, I also have to say that each of these words, you know, we've got various views on how these words can, 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 can mean. Um, you know, we have dictionaries spanning hundreds of years now. And over that time, I think we've got better and better at identifying what these words actually mean. But the biggest thing that we realised is that words only have meaning in use. It's only as we use the word that we can see what it means. And so a lot of the time I'm going to say, "Okay, here's the word, but let's look at the verses that actually use this word to help us paint the picture. I have to say that uh, one of the reasons it's important to do a class like this is that Hebrew words are very rarely perfectly evoked by an English word. Uh, they are two very different languages from very different cultures and very different histories with very different purposes. English is a wonderfully precise and remarkably mundane language. Uh, it's, not, it's not ideal for expressing emotions or dreams or, 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 or pictures. Um, Hebrew is a completely different thing. It is trying to, to convey pictures more often, uh, which means another thousand words. <laughs> Uh, but that's not uncommon. I'm not saying this is unique to Hebrew and English. Uh, I mean, this happens with any language. You take one language, you try and put it into another language, and there are words that just don't fit. Um, let me take, take a, a, a Gaelic term, cuneless. Um, cuneless is a word which does not fit into English. Um, so if you look up in a dictionary, it will say uh, homesick. And that's, that's, that's in the right ballpark. But that, that's not what that word means, um, Melatonias is a word that's wrapped up in history. It's a word that really kind of comes through in its strongest during the time of the Highland Clearances. And so you had families, you had people who were just kind of ripped apart and, and, and sent all over the world. And so you had groups of people who were taken from their home, from their family, forcibly, taken to parts of the world and to meet people that they'd never heard of. And there was an agony. It would be closer to a form of grief, that sense of loss that was conveyed by this word. Um, and homesick doesn't do it. Uh, there's more to I mean, there's it's a sense of wishing to almost go back in time to a person you once were, as well as everything that has been lost. And so it doesn't really quite work to say homesick. Now, here's the interesting thing. Uh, there are less and less native Gaelic speakers around. There are more and more people who have learned it through the dictionary, and more and more and more this word is being used to mean homesick. And there will come a point where the actual meaning of that word is lost. Which is quite terrifying. It's more terrifying when we realise the same thing is happening with Hebrew. When we translate it into an English over and over and over and over again, and it doesn't really quite capture it, it's the best we can do, there comes a point when eventually we start just simply thinking that that Hebrew word means that English word. And the, I'm sure, you know, unless there are classes like this, etc., the, the, you know, these words will eventually be lost. But maybe I'm just in a more pessimistic point of uh, <laughs> frame of mind at the moment but this is the same thing this is what happens actually with regard to Koneus I find it interesting because the funny thing is that the Hebrew people would have understood that word uh, better than, than we do when we say homesick I mean you know by the waters of Babylon there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion you know that, that's coolness <laughs> as it were uh, you know that, that's that's what it means or, or in Hebrew at um, atzebesilev um, uh, it kind of perfectly sums it up um you know, for example here a glad heart makes a cheerful face but by sorrow of the heart the spirit is crushed they've got, that, they've got the same idea in Hebrew uh, as it were because of the, the, the experiences that they went through um, from Egypt to Babylon they have the history to give rise to a word like that so um, I find it interesting when we're dotting around languages uh, but I find it more interesting to try and see ideas which are not translated over Uh, Now, as we go forward um, through the different classes, this will become more and more and more apparent. Uh, Tonight, uh, we're going to be starting with something that I think is is really important. We're going to be starting with the names and titles of God, which is remarkable. But every single one of them conveys a little bit more than we're able to convey in English. Just a little bit more. And it's not as simple as saying right and wrong. That's not really it. It's more like, you know, seeing in black and white and then seeing in colour, 4D, full experience, you know. It's not wrong. It's just there's more to it. For example, my favourite example I think I I used uh, uh, when when, when commenting on this class previously. um, One of my favourite words to describe this would be rakia. Now, rakia is the word uh, which we translate as firmament or sky. And I love this word because uh, the Hebrew word (coughs) conveys a lot more than just that, but also in the context in Genesis we get even more out of it. So it is fair to actually look at it in use right there and say that the word means uh, a, a precious metal that's been beaten to a perfect thinness and now awaits the hand of the master craftsman to begin his work in one word. And you can imagine the translators looking at each other and go, will we just write down firmament? I just take down firmament, that's fine. You know? Because it is talking about the sky. It's not wrong, it's just woefully small. And it has consequences. So for example, Rakea, when we're talking about this wonderful uh, creation, uh, you know, it talks about the sky with a sort of emotive awe. You know, when you see the the work of the sky every single day, it's a new piece of art. And when you look at the, the stars of the sky, you know, without all the light pollution, when you see this carpet of stars and you're amazed and you realize that the very hand of God was involved. It talks about the greatest art at the hands of the greatest artist. And so we have a word picture and it is beautiful. And it means God was intimately and lovingly involved when he made it all. He didn't just make it and is impassive and far removed, which is the consequence of just writing sky or firmament. He was intimately involved in making it perfect. And so there are consequences, and you get whole branches of theology about how God doesn't feel, uh, starting with this gap between Hebrew and English. Anyway, we're going to be doing uh, Names Matter. Uh, These are the names we're going to be uh, looking at uh, in Hebrew, kind of the English version on the other side. And (coughs) I I was thinking, you know, where do we start? Where do you start? I mean, we could start with creation. That's a good place to start. Uh, But I thought, actually, no, we need to start before that. Uh, We actually need to start with God himself. Uh, Before we can look at anything else, I thought this was the right place to start. And, you know... uh, So there can be some dispute over the words that I've chosen, you know, you could have chosen that word or that word. God is clearly where we have to start. Um, I I think it's the case that most of us, when we think of God, we have a picture in our heads. And most of the time that picture in our heads is fine and and it gets us through most of the time, but if it's not a multifaceted God, if it's not slightly wider than that immediate image, then sometimes we can become unstuck. I mean, you know, how do you approach God when you're utterly broken if you really primarily just think of him as a judge? Um, you know, what, what do we do if we just think that he's a friend? Where, where's all the awe and reverence gone? It's, it's multifaceted. And the Old Testament uh, had a way of describing different aspects of God so that a different part of his character would come through, particularly when it was needed. And so we find Job, he cries out to El Shaddai because he wants that aspect of God. That's the, the aspect, the element that he is crying out to. That part of his nature. It would have been different if he had said Elohim or El Yon. It's crying out for a different response from a different part of God. Basically, if we're aware of what name is being used, we have a much better understanding of what the text is trying to do. <laughs> When the text is saying something, we should know, and it helps us understand what is actually being conveyed. So, uh, before I start properly, um, I should say, when I say we're going to study God and study the names of God, it actually sounds as though I'm going to put God under the microscope, which is, of course, ridiculous. (laughs) Um, it is much more accurate to say uh, that when we come to study God, we put ourselves under his microscope. That's a more accurate way of putting it. Um, you know, I love what Job says, Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. Um, what I, what, by, by looking at all of the names of God, we won't get through all of them tonight, but if we look at all the names of God, all the titles of God, all the rules of God, everything that is revealed in Scripture, I genuinely think of it as a glimpse of the shadow of God, uh, because he is far too much for us to imagine. We can put him under a microscope and understand him, but rather we grasp something of him, and we can grasp that a little bit more when we see all these different titles telling us something slightly different about the same God. That's the idea anyway uh, for tonight. So, what is in a name? Uh, In our contemporary Western cultures, personal names are usually a little more than labels that our parents at least momentarily liked and just kind of gave to us at birth. Um, Now, each of the names have a a meaning, but very often that has a a lesser import to the parents than the fact that it sounded kind of nice. It kind of had a good ring to it. Um, The Old Testament, well, names really matter. (laughs) Um, They're more than just labels. Um, so, for example, Isaac, it means laughter because it goes back to the story of this child and his parents. The laughter of both his parents, but in particular the laugh of his mother. Uh, she was just incredulous at the idea that she'd be a mother and rejoiced in laughter when he was born. Uh, someone like Ishmael, God hears because it is in the wilderness when, he, uh, when Hagar, his mother, is, is ready to die. And she calls out and God hears and saves him from death. Well, God hears, becomes the name. And that makes sense. But even with human beings, the name cannot convey everything to do with this individual. It's just not possible. I mean, let's let's take Moses, it means drawn out. And that's a great start because uh, he was drawn out from the bulrushes, he was taken from the water, and that's great. But that doesn't really describe Moses. You know, this learned man, the the shepherd, the leader, the legislator, the the soldier and statement, this impulsive and yet meekest of men who spoke to God face to face as a friend and yet never entered into the promised land. None of that is conveyed in the name Moses. So how could one name, no matter how wonderful, fully describe God? How could one noun, one title define him so fully as to incorporate all aspects of his character that humanity needed revealed? and so I think because of that problem the Old Testament contains a number of titles a number of roles, a number of names a number of compound names for God and each of them reveals something about him and each of them come about from an interaction, each of them have a backstory. each of them have a way of us understanding what it is that they mean so, we'll start <laughs> so the first one I wanted to look at is uh, Elohim Elohim uh, Elohim, it's a, a strong word, an important word. Um, it's uh, fairly straightforward. the first part, uh, L, so we'll put L at the beginning. Um, L is in and of itself a word which occurs uh, 242 times in the Old Testament, L, just on its own, and it's used in a, in a variety of context. Now, the most common translation is "God." The, one of the main problems we have is that it's a word that's used by all of the nations in the region. It's not specifying you know, Yahweh, the God of gods, the, the, the God of the Israelites, the Hebrew people. It's just basically God, kind of how we use the term today. Uh, the word God uh, in our culture today does not immediately evoke uh, our God. Um, and so, uh, similarly here, L. One of the reasons um, that, we ha- that we have is, one of the reasons we have a slight difficulty with it, is that it really literally just means mighty or strong one. Now, we know that uh, because of the use of the term. Um, so um, here we go uh, ascribe to the Lord we'll get to that later on uh, mighty ones ascribe to the Lord glory and strength and it's just simply saying uh, those who are strong uh, your sons and your daughters shall be given to other people while your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long but you will be helpless in Hebrew literally it says there will be no L in your hand no strength uh, in your, or might in your hand um, There's plenty of other examples of l, which basically meaning human strength. Uh, It can be strong people, uh, we can have strong trees, we can even have it describing idols. Uh, But when it is used of God, it emphasizes his, his dominance, his strength, his power over creation, but particularly mankind. And the wonderful thing is that it provides the believer a great confidence. Because uh, when we say, you know, uh, where's my aid going to come from? Well, here's El, the mighty one, coming to the rescue. Uh, So he is the El of Israel who gives strength and might to the people. Literally, uh, he is the El who gives El to the people. (laughs) Uh, So... That's El, and then that brings us to our first word, Elohim. Uh, Elohim itself is used 2,601 times, so it's an incredibly common word. And there is something of a thought gap. Um, This is what I'm trying to talk about earlier on, when the word conveys a little bit more than what we translate. (coughs) Excuse me. So, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth very first use of it. Uh, We have Elohim used there. Uh, In the beginning God. And it kind of falls down a wee bit there. Um, I mean why not just use El if you just wanted to convey God. Elohim is a little bit more. Elohim um, in fact Elohim is actually used 35 times in chapters 1 and chapters 2 in Genesis. And it's because this mighty of mighty ones is on the move. You see, Elohim uh, is the pluralization of El. But that's really used as a superlative. So what I mean is, Elohim means the El of El's. Or God squared, if you wish. (laughs) Uh, The mightiest of mighty ones. And so when we actually apply it to God, it's not just simply that he's God, he is the God of gods. Something even greater, if you see what I mean. That's that sense of that superlative. It's like the greatest example of El. Um, what I love (laughs) about this is that this brings like, you know, so already it was the mighty one, but now it's the mightiest of all mighty ones, the God of all gods, the God of gods, by whose mighty power the whole of the vast creation is created, who says and it is done, who brings into being what was not, whose words form the worlds. He made all things. He is the possessor and ruler of heaven and earth. His presence cannot be confined by space. He doesn't need the aid of man. Through his great will and his great power, all things have their very being. Elohim. <laughs> that's, that's the sense of it, if you see what I mean. The pluralization of it has two effects. Uh, so this superlative, meaning the mightiest, I'm saying it expressed God squared or God of gods. It means that all power is summed up in one God. But what I love about it is the fact that it's used in this pluralization. Uh, we see all the other nations around; they had a whole pantheon of gods. They have a whole array of gods to deal with all these different things. You know, uh, they could they could end up with in some cultures dozens, and some hundreds, and then some thousands of gods in order to cover every eventuality. And the Hebrews are saying, yeah, you see your entire pantheon of gods, all of that summed up in one. Now, this is important. You see, this is why it is so terrible when later on, the the children of Israel, the the children of Judah, uh, when they go and they say, well, God, that's great, that's fantastic, we'll we'll serve you, we'll keep you in your temple there, but we're going to add other gods we're going to basically subcontract out some of your responsibilities so when the people of Israel decide to turn to Baal for example, Baal was a, a, a rain god essentially uh, that was his main uh, uh, purpose and so the people of Israel decided okay we're going to keep God Yahweh He can have his temple, we'll keep doing the sacrifices, but we're going to add Baal. And so we're no longer going to turn to Yahweh for rain, we're not going to look to him, the real God, for rain. We're going to turn to Baal for rain instead. And so they put the two together. And this is incredibly offensive. And uh, so God was now just being added to. And I must confess that I really do love the way that God responds in 1 Kings 18 uh, uh, and uh, just prior uh, you've got Elijah and what does God do? God says to these people well, okay, you're going to turn to Baal for rain good luck with that go ahead, knock yourself out and they do there's three years of drought while they turn to Baal for rain and then of course Elijah in, in chapter 18 of First Kings says on the mount who is the real Elohim? which one is the God of gods? which one? does it all. And of course Baal is found wanting in the strength and power of Elohim being visibly demonstrated. Wonderful work. <laughs> and it conveys so much. And for us it means we can't have other idols in our life. We can't say well I'm going to trust God for A, B, and C, but you know, we're going to subcontract out the rest. It's not how it works. In terms of application for us today, it is also particularly important to note that because of his incomparable might and power, all of his promises are secure. It's not just that he means well, but he has got the power to deliver on what he says. Uh, so, the covenant that he makes with us, the promises that he has made to us, they are going to come true because there is nothing and no one that can stop him. That's the great wonder of having Elohim, this God of gods. So no matter who else and what else sets itself up as uh, a rival it doesn't matter because he is the Elohim and he will deliver on what he has promised. So, that's your first one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So any questions on that one? of to Um, I don't think that the Trinity was in the mindset of the original (laughs) writers. I think that as we look back on it, we can see something of that. Uh, You know, when God is saying, uh, when he talks about us and and, and things in in that context. Yes, yeah. Uh, Yes, I mean, he's not talking to angels, he's not talking to people, he's talking to himself uh, in the plural. Uh, But for the original writers, it was primarily about this, God of gods. Um, There's a lot of texts, actually, that, you know, it's only later on that we realise that they're saying a lot more. Um, I mean, you know, Psalm 22 is not, strictly speaking, a messianic psalm, because it wasn't a psalm that was saying, this is what's going to happen to the Messiah. It's only once it happened that people looked back and thought, oh, (laughs) that actually applies here, if if you see what I mean. Um, Now, I do believe the Hebrew people had the basic building blocks for what we now understand as the Trinity. Um, they believed in, 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 in the father the, the, you know, the, the, this god of gods they believed in the ruach the spirit of god which was god living within people and animating people active on earth and they also believed that god went between the two very often in human form uh, so I think the basic building blocks are all there and I think it's okay for us to look back and see something of the trinity um, but I'm not suggesting that that was in the mind of the people who were writing it at the time does that make sense? yeah I try and be as precise as I can. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, um, well, uh, that, that's the first one, uh, um, Elohim. I thought I'd start off with one that was relatively non-controversial, just you know, quite nice. I'm glad you're sitting down for the next one, though. Because <laughs> the next one is El Shaddai. Um, now, uh, El Shaddai it, it, it very often is translated as God Almighty. Now, why would that be a problem? based on what I've just been saying about the previous one (laughs) Uh, well basically El means mighty uh, um, um, and and, uh, Elohim we know the mighty is the mighty ones if you wanted to convey God Almighty we would just use Elohim we just use or, or El and what happens with El Shaddai if we translate it as God Almighty the Shaddai bit just disappears just keeping the El bit and so that is a bit of a problem that one of the words which is there to reveal who God is can sometimes just disappear so I'm glad you're sitting down because this one is fun <laughs> uh, while some names like the one rendered God, uh, I was talking about a thought gap there, you know that Elkheim just is a little bit more, uh, as it were Um, you know, the might and the power, etc. There are other terms that do disappear in the translation. And I see this here. So this term, El Shaddai, is used 46 times. Uh, Either as a strict compound or in relation to it, so the El of Shaddai can sometimes be used. Um, And primarily we see it in the books of Genesis, six times, and in the book of Job, with 13 times, just in the book of Job, it is used. And it's important because when they're crying out to El Shaddai, they're crying out to something which is different to Elohim. When you cry out to Elohim, it's, it's to do with his power, and his uh, omnipotence, and his greatness. El Shaddai is different to that. Um, could somebody here actually read uh, a text out for me? Um, if you've got a Bible with you, could you turn to Genesis 17, verse 1? Now, I'll put it up in a minute, I'll be interested to hear what you've got. So that's uh, Genesis 17, verse 1 when Abram was 99 years old the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him I am God Almighty walk before me and be blameless great, so there's a really good example of what I'm talking about El Shaddai in this case has been changed to be God Almighty and that actually radically alters how we read that text Now, now hopefully by the end of this bit on this name you'll see why that is um, so it's more than a thought gap, as I said, there we go. Uh, this is idea, God Almighty, um, the, the, the translation there. Uh, one of the main problems that we have, one of the main reasons that we don't translate it, is because Shaddai comes from the, the, the Shade, meaning breast. Uh, now this is actually best seen uh, in Genesis forty-nine 25. You've got a, a parallel uh, statement here, um, so a similar idea of thought. But the God, uh, that's El, of your father who will help you by the... Shaddai, who will bless you with the blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crutches beneath, blessing of the breasts, Shaddai, and of the woman. It's a parallel statement. The two words are supposed to have a resonance with each other. Um, Now, the God of the breasts uh, I suppose a literal rendering that's not quite how we understand it uh, I suppose that's a very literal sense but that's not to be understood in a 21st century sexualization. Th- that's not what's going on here it's rather in the context of a nursing mother the actual purpose uh, of the breast in other words we have an iconic description of one of the most vehement loves the mother who is there as protector of the most vulnerable, and a provider of everything that that little one needs. One of the reasons it became an issue is there is something of the feminine there, (laughs) you may have noticed, and it's used in the title for God. Um, Actually, an awful lot of the feminine uh, aspects when it comes to God have been uh, removed, uh, to to be fair. Um, So, for example, there's this whole thing about the mercy of the womb. Um... Let me see. So have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. That's how Psalm 51, verse 1 is very often rendered. More literally, it should say, Bend down to me, O God of gods, because that's uh, Elohim, uh, out of your unbreakable love, that's uh, the chesed, that's this incredible love of God, out of your abundant compassion of the womb, erase my rebellion. And so, what, what is actually going on here is, is David is saying, Look, I don't want. A fair and just verdict. I don't want a judge. I don't want someone who's impartial. I want the mercy of the womb. So, so like a mother who looks at their errant child who is saying, I am sorry. And the mother forgives. That's what David is angling for. He doesn't want fairness. He's guilty. Of the most unspeakably awful crimes. And so he comes to God not as the mighty God, not as the judge. He comes to him with this idea of the mercy of the womb. It's really important. (laughs) But an awful lot of those kinds of terms uh, were uh, removed. Um, Later Greek translators in particular had a very different view of women and so there's an awful lot of these texts that have been uh, changed however we've got to bear in mind that from the very beginning man and woman were made in the image of God Genesis 1 uh, 27 uh, meaning that there is something in the feminine uh, in humanity that can shed light on the nature of God and to be fair equating God with a nursing mother is something that God does so it's not just this this is just something that's just kind of randomly in there God himself does that in um, Isaiah 49 verse 15 um Right, yeah, few. Uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, in Isaiah 49 verse 15, he himself uh, takes that example of being the breastfeeding mother and trying to show how there's a depth of relationship there. You know that he could not possibly forget them, you know, just like the, the the mother. The idea, though, is to try and say, okay, I want you to imagine the greatest love that a human being could possibly manage to do. And he does it in different ways. He talks about being a father, more commonly. He talks about that mother to the newborn child. He talks about a husband and a wife. He's trying to say, think of your very, very best, because I'm like that, but more than you can imagine. It's just that's as far as you can go. And so he uses something that we should be able to recognize, something which is really beautiful, something which is really powerful, to convey an idea about what he is like, because that's as far as we can go. That's the, the, the purpose uh, of this. There, there is something like that breastfeeding mother. And there's something in there which we should be able to grasp and see in God um, because uh, we're fairly limited as to what we can understand. Essentially, um, the idea of Shade, the idea of, of, of this breastfeeding mother, the, the way that we understand it best is that God, the One, the Mighty One who nourishes, supplies or satisfies That's where we kind of go with with this picture. Um, So, alongside El, it becomes the one mighty to nourish, satisfy, and supply, to utterly supply every need, to vehemently protect. I do recognize that very often uh, women are described as the weaker sex, and yet if you antagonize a mother near her newborn child, I mean, it's not worth doing, you know, Uh, anywhere in the animal kingdom or within uh, human beings, you know, the the, the, the she-bear and her cub, she's hardly known as being a pushover, (laughs) you know, and so that that vehemence and that protection is included, Uh, that provision. Um, as it were is included Now, uh, some of you, many of you will know that I've got four kids and it usually takes quite a long time before they recognise I even exist you know, when they wake up um, you know, they see me as the means of transporting them to their mother <laughs> you know normally if I pick them up they just get angry because <laughs> I don't know what they want until I hand them over to their mum and it takes quite a while before they recognise that I have a role in their life as well usually once they're weaned <laughs> that's the idea God is all that we need God provides all that we need that is the idea can you see why Job would cry out to El Shaddai in the midst of his need rather than say Elohim there's something different there and so that's why uh, he does it um you could, you could uh, add into it you know, this idea that God basically pours out blessing rather than simply sprinkles it out. You know, there's that kind of element uh, in there as they're all providing one. Um, so in, in Genesis, uh, in the, in the, the blessing, uh, uh, here you've got a construct from, so that's the L so of Shaddai, uh, Shaddai uh, will bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you so that you may be a multitude of people see how that word that description of God fits with that blessing yeah hopefully <laughs> so this is uh, Abraham I don't, uh, you know, uh, and, and Abraham you know, when he was at a point where it was impossible for the promise of God to come true with regard to his heir you know, to be born uh, God reveals himself as El Shaddai that was the verse that we read uh, earlier God the supplier of all of his needs so remember this is what we read out God Almighty now think about this when Abram was 10 years old Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him I am God Almighty walk before me and be blameless sounds quite threatening <laughs> if I'm honest because this is the God Almighty the all powerful one he's looking at you and he's saying walk blameless you know that, I don't know about you but for me that is scary <laughs> you know and this is going to be the basis of, of the promises of God you know, if you, if you are blameless before the mighty one, then I will give you something. You know, it gets it all muddled up, to be honest. Because the text actually says, I here, I am El Shaddai. Walk before my face and be complete. Completely different. So once you start messing with one word, you end up having to change the others. The idea is not that you in your wonderful human strength manage to walk blamelessly before the almighty God the idea is that the El Shaddai when you walk before his face when you're walking with him you find that he makes you complete that's why this stuff matters (laughs) because that is now theologically correct (laughs) I don't make myself complete that's a nonsense I can make myself blameless I can't walk blamelessly I mean I try but El Shaddai the one who provides when I walk before his face I find that he makes me complete now that is beautiful <laughs> uh, that, that is why you know, it would be the text I to filled the thanksgiving rather than dread <laughs> okay, so hopefully you can see why it makes such a big difference to see El Shaddai in the text? Uh, making this change can have a bit of a domino effect, as you can see. Um, you know, um, so for example, here in, in Job, the Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant uh, righteousness. He will not violate. Um, but once we start changing things back. To what they were, instead of the mighty, you know, we have El Shaddai again, it does this. The Shaddai, who we cannot grasp, is utterly reliable, excelling in justice, and abundant in righteousness, which he has not violated. A, there is a different sense to the verse. In terms of application, then, for us, uh, where we are uh, today, there are two points. Where Shade is used, we should actually read into it something of the parent rather than the might. If we want to convey might, we've got, we've got other terms for that. It's, you know, We can convey might, but just not here. There are a wide array of titles, and each of them adds to our understanding, adds to the picture when we think of God. And when we lose one... It denies us the opportunity to see that wider perspective as to who he is. So I think it matters. I think it matters if we don't just simply have God Almighty twice. (laughs) but We have something nuanced, something which tells us something to the nature of God, which is there in Scripture. It's not as if it should be a secret that God has his parental sense. But actually, when we come to these verses, it makes them sound very different. Okay. Any questions on that one, before going any further? Will your translation from Hebrew to Greek and to English, or Because uh, there is such a difference between uh, what we've faced with? Yes. Are you going from Hebrew to Greek to English, and a degree in English comparable?
1: or does it go right
0: off track So Yeah, I'm, I'm doing my best to go from Hebrew to English, and um, my caveat at the beginning was how hard that is anyway. <laughs> and so you, you can get some nuance, that's what it because the picture is so big and we're trying to make it relatively small. So that's my get out of jail if you see something that's slightly different from what I put up. However, many of our translations have gone from the Hebrew to the Greek and then the English. And that is a bigger problem. Um, that's quite a significant problem to be fair because it's also gone through the Greek culture before it comes to us um, actually it's quite like what Martin Luther said of it, he said that the people who have Hebrew drink from purest streams of God uh, and those who have Greek drink from the runoff but uh, those who are using Latin drink at the puddle at the bottom of the hill <laughs> 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 uh, uh, <yeah. laughs> there is something I think fair by substituting Latin for English at that point. I mean if you look at the King James Bible, that's the one that's in my head because it's the one I grew up with. Uh, now, 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 it's what I read and was, was influenced by. It's really good. It is really good. When you think about that first attempt, um, second attempt, you know what I mean. I mean it, was, it was a really incredible exercise. One of the problems we had though is they had exiled all the Jews and all of the friends of Jews uh, just before they did that. And so when it came to translating the Hebrew they like, oh, hang on, Ah, who's, who's going to translate the Hebrew? And they did not have enough Hebraists to do a translation, so they used the Greek. Of course they did. You know, and they did their best, and they did a really, really, really good job. The problem is, is there a few gaps that I think can be filled. Um, I mean, I'm biased. I mean, I, I love Hebrew. Um, I've done Hebrew for a very long time indeed, and um, it, there's something about it which is vivacious and alive. And you got to bear in mind that Greek and English are scientific languages. They're not supposed to be like that. They're supposed to be mundane. They're supposed to be precise. And so getting from the Hebrew to, to the Greek was, was a nightmare. Getting from the Hebrew to the Greek to the English. I mean, I actually think that our English Bibles are the greatest piece of academic work that's ever been done. I think they're brilliant. I don't think we're finished. I think there's, you know, there's, there's room to keep improving, to, to keep getting it better. Um, and it's things like that that I think would be high up in my list. Is there any um, particular version that you read that would be closer to the Hebrew? Um, yeah. For example, reading the amplified version here which sort of is in between... Yeah, Yeah. I mean, if I'm honest, if good we to translate it properly, You need a wheelbarrow to carry your Old Testament, you know, because it'd be enormous, you know. I think that now we're in a digital age, it is actually far more possible to do something. But up until now, we've had to think, how can you create something that can actually be carried by a human being? And so that automatically narrows down what we're able to do. Um, Each of the translations that we have have a different purpose. And actually, as we go through the weeks, I'll actually be extolling some of the, the benefits and virtues of different ones at different points. Uh, but they have a different purpose behind it. And so if you use it with the, with the same purpose, great. So uh, an NIV, for example, um, is trying to get the, kind of the gist of the, the, the idea, as it were, uh, and it's designed to be read. It's been designed to be read out and actually works quite well. Um, an ESV is, 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 is more clunky because it's designed to be studied. It's a different purpose. Uh, so, if you have the same purpose that they had, you tend to, to do well. My main thing is, because uh, obviously I just use the Hebrew, that's, that's my favourite. <laughs> uh, failing that, you know, I might use the, the Jewish Publication Society, for example, because they'll have a whole lot of words in there which are saying, can't translate, translate that into English, just can't do it. And so they'll just keep some Hebrew words because they just recognise, no, just can't do it. <laughs> so, I get to do a whole class, whereas they just <laughs> they say, no, not touching that. And most of them are the titles of God. Um, or uh, the love of God, and there's certain key terms that they just don't touch. The problem with that is that there are some verses that just collapse into just going back to Hebrew. <laughs> so you know that that's, that's the kind of the, the issue. Um, I think that the best thing to do would be to learn some Hebrew and to have different English versions at your disposal. And when they are really wildly different, when you're looking at a verse and they're very different in different texts, you think there's something here I need to look into. And then, you know, nowadays it takes a few clicks on on the internet (laughs) to bring up quite wonderful resources and help you to see. So my main thing is, have more than one English Bible. And when they're quite clearly different, that's when you think, oh, I'd like to, to find out what's going on. Because there's probably something like this in the background. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't want to just say, come next week. (laughs) But there is an element of that. When we look at the sovereignty, I'm going to use different English translations and show how wildly different they are. And then the Hebrew, to show how actually they're all trying to grab something of this picture that's just too broad. If you know what I mean. Cool. Okay. um, uh, (coughs) Excuse me. So that takes us on to our third word, um, uh, El Roe. And it is El Rui. it's not Elroy. Roy. Um, that has a whole other connotation in my head, you know. Uh, I remember uh, there, was, uh, there was a student that I had just kept on reading it out as Elroy. And every time we read it in my head, I was like, "El Roy," it's just, and it, it just didn't work. For one of the titles, for God, you know, it just didn't work. It is El Roy. It is. It is, it is something. It's, yeah, it's where El Roy comes from. But <laughs> now, as you'll notice, El Roy, you can hear the L again, can't you? at The very beginning, the El Roy. So it's a compound word. This mighty God, who Roy, you know, that this who's he mighty this time about. Well, um, this is this further compound word. It's it's incredibly beautiful. Uh, It's used once in the Old Testament, but it's such a beautiful one I wanted to bring it out. It comes up in Genesis 16 verse 13, uh, but I wanted to include it because this is a really good example where this this title of God, this revelation of who he is, comes about because he interacts with a human being. There's a backstory to it that is worth looking at. And in actual fact, if you just go straight to a dictionary and forget the whole backstory, sometimes you can get it quite wrong. I mean, when we've got terms like Elohim or El Shaddai, they occur so frequently and in relationship and acts of God. Um, you know, sometimes we forget uh, what, what's, what's really going on behind the term. Um, each of these words uh, has a, a, a meaning. Okay, so here we go, uh, Genesis 16, verse 13. So she, that, that Hagar, called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing, el For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Now she says this uh, following what is a rather ghastly story. Uh, the back story, essentially, is that there's this childless couple, Abram and Sarai, who, on the insistence of the wife, adopt what was a normal common local custom of having a surrogate mother, in this case uh, Hagar, and Hagar was to provide the heir for Abram. Now the custom of the time would require that the surrogate place her head on the lap of the adoptive mother whilst intercourse took place, and it essentially dehumanised her to the status of a child incubator. Uh, although in this case, and I'm sure it wasn't a unique occurrence once the baby was conceived there was a bit of tension between the wife and the surrogate and for Hagar it resulted in the pregnant woman fleeing jealous Sarah uh, and residing alone in the desert uh, expecting to die it's while she's in the desert that God comes to her proving to her that she's not been abandoned it's in this context that this wonderful hope is provided in promises about her future and that of her descendants and so the passage concludes with this remarkable insight into the nature of God. For having met with God, Hagar declares him to be El Roy. Now, if you look up El Roy in a dictionary, particularly one of the older ones, uh, not, not so much the ones of the last five years or so, but some of the older ones, um, they tend to just take this word and divorce it from the context, from the narrative. And we're simply told... Um, Elroy, the, the mighty one, the God who sees, or sees everything, the, the mighty sense to it. Um, that's, that's not wrong. The problem is that that's only half of the picture. <laughs> you know, they've had to kind of choose, as it were, something, and they've, they've gone with that one. Um, the, the problem is, you know, the, the, it's not quite what is being expressed. It certainly doesn't give any credence to the context, what it was actually saying in the text, the, the way in which it is being used. So, um, <coughs> I think it's, it's really quite interesting. This is not wrong to say that El Royi is the God of seeing. But can anyone already, and this is without any Hebrew involved, can anyone already see a bit of a problem in saying, you are the God of seeing, um, truly here I have seen him who looks after me? Well, you got one problem. Um, uh, no, she's seen him. <laughs> And yeah. what way she seen him? Like, in what form? Yeah, well, we, we, we don't know. Um, so it wouldn't be the full glory of God because she should be dead. Um, but clearly he comes to her and speaks to her, etc. Yes? Yeah. Uh, the word see is there twice, but like seeing, seeing. Yes, good. So, we've translated El as, he is the God of seeing. But she says, I have seen him. So, without any hint of Hebrew, We can see we've got a slight problem if we're simply saying he's the God of seeing because she's actually saying I'm calling you this because I have seen you. It's not that way. (laughs) It's that way. That's without any Hebrew being being involved. We can just see just clearly from the English there is something more going on. So, um, actual fact, we don't have to infer too much. Um, (coughs) As I said, for, truly, I have seen the back of him who sees after me. Now bear in mind, we've got this term in use, uh, as it were. The Hebrew has a causal key at this point, so that's the, the for uh, there, I uh, meaning the title is to express the idea that Hagar saw God. In other words, you're called this for, or because, I have this, if you see what I mean. So there's a link between the name and, and the action, as it were. Um, also, she, she actually she actually says, "I've seen the back of God." Literally, that's what she says, uh, which is important in the context of you know seeing God and living. This is kind of what the, the, I suppose Moses is a good example of that. You know, he sees the back of God, and the idea is that you couldn't take uh, a glimpse of the full glory of God, but a sort of a, a, a much a smaller amount, so that you are actually able to see and live the idea of seeing the back of God rather than uh, the full glory of God. But you've also got to bear in mind. She calls the place uh, which literally means and it says the well where I saw God and lived. So the context alone tells us that it's probably not enough to see this term as the God who sees. They already knew he was the God who sees. <laughs> they already knew that he was the God who sees everything. and She doesn't need to come up with a title to convey wow! you're the God who sees everything. I mean they know that already. She's saying Wow! Because every other time we have roi, it is something that has been seen, not something which is seeing. The effect, sorry, the effect is not to say he is the God who sees, but this rather incredible thing: he is the God who sees, but he is also the God who is willing to be seen. That's the import of the context. That's why she calls the, the, you know, the, the place what she calls it. That's why she says, I'll call you El Royi because I have seen you. <laughs> and so, uh, very often in Hebrew, you've got a double meaning in, in words. I know that we pride ourselves. You know, when we get like a double meaning in a sentence, we're all quite chuffed about it. We? We're like, yeah, that's got two meanings in there. And the Hebrews do that like with most words. <laughs> and very often it's to convey both. But the primary sense of this is the awe and wonder at the idea that God would be willing to be seen. And that sets up a whole idea of a God who is willing to be found. A God who says, seek me and I will be found. You know, that is the, the, the sense of this. You know, when it comes to applying it into our own lives, uh, you know, there is a the sense that this is the God who is willing to be seen. A God who is willing for us to come to him and to find him. You know, incredible. And and that's the import of this word. And I think it's really important for us to recognise that. Uh, And to be fair, you probably didn't need any Hebrew there. You know, I was trying to show from the context alone, we should see in actual fact there's a lot more going on uh, than, well, shall I say, meets the eye. I'd better keep going though, uh, sadly, uh, (laughs) to the one we should have all been waiting for, um, uh, as it were, uh, the name of God himself. Now, um, Yahweh. Um, this is an interesting one. We're not entirely sure how it's supposed to be pronounced, I'll be entirely honest. Uh, we're not entirely sure. Most scholars have just basically gone for Yahweh because it, it seems the most likely uh, there are some who insist his name is Yahoo, which... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even if it was, I don't know if I could handle that. i mean, You know, I mean, it makes sense on one level, but uh, I don't think I could handle that. So, so most of us are just kind of settled on Yahweh. Right? We've kind of kind of gone um, um, with that one. Uh, um, essentially, the tetragrammaton, which is a fancy way of saying, you know, it's it's a word with four letters. <laughs> um, it's famously not pronounced by Jewish readers of the text. They very often substitute Adonai, which means Lord, or sometimes Hashem, just simply the name. You know? uh, in fact because of that practice of substituting Yahweh with Adonai that's why very often in most of our texts we'll just simply have the word Lord written out but usually in block capital letters just to give a, a kind of a heads up that it's actually talking about the name of God and not Adonai which means Lord I find it slightly less confusing just to use his name <laughs> um, and, and there are as I said there's lots of different ways um, who of, 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 of pronouncing it one of the really cool things, though, is the letters uh, that are being used. Um, yeah. I actually think this could well be the most precious word in the whole Bible. This is the name of God. Uh, like, my name is Ian, it, it's, his, it's his name. Everything else is a title, describes something about him. This is his name. Um, and, you know, it's possibly forgotten the pronunciation, but I really love what happens here. Uh, the Hebrew people invented vowels. I know at this moment in time I might be the only excited person in the room, but this is awesome! <laughs> okay, so before this, only the super rich uh, who could afford scribes, and only like, you know, the, like, the super clever maybe, could read and write because there weren't any vowels. So, to give you an example, my name, it would be very confusing if we didn't have any vowels. So, my name is Ian, I A I N, so you just write N. <laughs> I said, what is his name is it Anne I don't know <laughs> I mean on is his name on no you know, <laughs> right, uh, so, you know it would be very confusing and so you had to have this whole special class of people the scribes and they were the arbiters of what you would be allowed to understand and this was a problem for the Hebrew people because they wanted every single boy and girl to learn to read and write they, they felt it was vital that the priests for example didn't just have all the kind of power and responsibility as it were uh, for you to get to God, uh, so you know they could not be the gateway to God. That was not allowed. The text was the gateway to God, and so the Hebrew people invented vowels so that everybody could learn to read. <coughs> I love that they invent vowels so everyone could have access to God. I think it's beautiful, but when they invented, they start. What they do is they double up some of their letters. They use some of the consonants as vowels because they're inventing it you know they're trying stuff out it doesn't quite work they go on to actually making real vowels later on but to start off with they use these two letters as vowels okay, so that's a, a primary vowel and sometimes consonant letters and what God does is he comes to these people with a name that has a special resonance with them because it's filled with vowels <laughs> and he says you've just invented vowels I'm going to give you a name that only you can read that only you can can grasp Yahweh Um, I find that really incredible Uh, this God who is the God of all the nations comes to these people and says I'm so especially your God and you're so especially my people that I'm going to give you a name that only you can understand I love that brilliant Uh, that's something which is very often overlooked I'll be honest (laughs) I just love that that's the God we serve uh, attention to detail that, that, that wonder uh, of coming with real relationship to where people are I mean most of the time let's be honest someone gets saved and we're thinking no can you just you know, mature very very quickly and stop doing all those annoying things that you shouldn't be doing <laughs> alright that's just me ok sorry uh, <laughs> but, you know there's that expectation that people just kind of become Christian overnight and, and, and therefore everything is completely turned around and in actual fact it's really amazing that we have a God who comes to where people are actually at and saves them and says I will be your God and then takes him from there on the journey. I, I love that. I really love that. And so uh, the people who invented vowels, he comes and says, "Right, here's a name that only you can possess." Uh, but I suppose more importantly, what does it actually mean? <laughs> I mean, I love that, but you know, what was the actual uh, mean? Uh, so, for example, uh, I am Yahweh, the Elohim of uh, Abraham, your father, and the Elohim of Isaac in, in Genesis uh, 28. <coughs> Excuse me, 13. So what we have here is a description of a personal God. He is a person, and when we see it, we're supposed to recognise that there is something of a relationship that is the, the kind of the mood music behind the scenes here. Every time we see it, I mean, in this verse, we see, I am Yahweh, and I have a relationship with your forefathers. I knew Abraham, your father, I, well, grandfather. I know uh, Isaac. You know, I've been their God all the way through, and now I am your and it's talking about relationship that's what this term is primarily used to describe it describes a a willingness to be near human beings the concern of the Lord uh, and his desire to be in a relationship with people and that's why it's the most frequently used term for God in the Old Testament uh, 6,521 times because the relationship is fundamentally what it's all about it is this name of relationship and that widespread use reminds us that more than simply being the almighty all-seeing, all-powerful, all-providing all-knowing, eternal one he is Yahweh, this great I am we say uh, the great I am um, because it's a noun from the verb uh, how to be and so it has an association with I am slightly awkward it kind of means I was, I am and will be it, it, it's, it's slightly wider than just simply I am but you've got to choose one in English so uh, that makes sense and so what does it mean well it, uh, you know, he says I am that which I am when he is uh, uh, questioned in Exodus 3:14, uh, and essentially you've got this idea of you know, I am beyond your fathoming I am and you cannot control me for I will be who I will be I am and I need no other I am unchangeable and will not be anything else but I am I am eternal I am all you need and nothing else all You need for salvation, all you need for life. I am faithful and can be no less. I am God, and an awful lot more. You know, this is actually important for the New Testament. As most of you will probably be aware, you know there are people who who claim that Jesus never claimed to be God, and they fundamentally misunderstood pretty much most of what he says. And I think it comes to the fore when he uses the great "I am" statements. Um, you know and he uses I am for himself and you can see judging from the reaction of everybody else they understood what he was getting at uh, so uh, John 8, 58-9 Jesus said to him, truly truly I say to you before Abraham was, I am and the response, so they picked up stones to throw at him but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple uh, the idea being, they know full well he's claiming to be God and so they seek to execute him. Uh, you know, they pick up stones, they seek his death. And in the end, they will see him crucified for blasphemy. Because when on trial, Jesus uses I am again for himself. And the response is to place him on a charge of blasphemy for equating himself with God. I mean, his hearers got it, <laughs> as it were. They understood that when Jesus claimed to be I am he's claiming divinity, he is claiming to be the one who met with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob the one who goes face to face with Moses who speaks to David and Elijah and many others now this uh, actually really matters uh, so the way I like to, to illustrate this is using Psalm 19 um, I love this psalm I really love this psalm any of you who know me reasonably well will have had this explained to you eventually because I love this psalm most of us probably have a psalm that has a certain resonance with us and think of it maybe I don't know as our psalm or my psalm or, you know if we can have that, that, that sort of approach maybe it changes over time but for me this is the psalm that resonates most with me because it really tries to it really does Manage to convey what I try and do with my life. So, uh, I want to compare verses 1 to 6 with verses 7 to 14. Let me see. Yeah. So, verses 1 to 6. Could someone just read out verse 1? What a glorious verse. So, Psalm 19, verse 1. Absolutely magnificent text. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Great, thank you. Now, just so you know, at this point we've got the word El. Now, do you remember this, that, that generic word just kind of means mighty one or God, you know, at a push. And so what we have there in verse 1 and for the opening verses is essentially this idea that there is a God. It's created in the heavens and they're magnificent, they're, they're wonderful. But if the psalm ended on that, it'd actually be quite bleak. Because it's saying that there is a God. Good luck with that. (laughs) You can't know him. You don't know what he wants from you. You don't know if you can ever actually know him or interact with him or any real sense. It's just that there is a God out there. El. So as magnificent as creation is, telling you that there is a God, it falls woefully short. And then it changes. The Torah of Yahweh is perfect. Now I know we say the law of the Lord is perfect, again, it kind of loses the Im- impact, but that Lord should be in block capital letters. That a little nudge to you to say this is actually the name of God. And what actually happens here is it says, through the word of God, I know we translate it as law, but it actually says Torah, that means the first five books of the Bible. That means when the psalmist is writing down, that is his entire Bible at that point he's saying because of the Bible it changes everything instead of El this unknown God we have Yahweh someone who can be known someone that we can be in relationship with the Bible tells us who he is and it opens up a relationship or at least a possibility of a relationship with this person that's the impact of changing the name <laughs> I find that amazing. <laughs> Just with that change from El to Yahweh, changes everything. You're know, Looking at creation, telling us there's a God, great, he's powerful, he's mighty, that's wonderful. He's able to do beautiful things, that's fantastic. I open up my Bible and I discover who he actually is. And there are no words for that. And the psalm tries, <laughs> sweeter than honey, You know, more precious than the most precious of gold, and it tries its best. I find that just magnificent. Uh, and this idea of the Torah, of the Yahweh, is perfect. Or, uh, to, um, uh, complete was another way. So, in other words, um, you know, the Bible tells you all about God. You're not going to get any more information beyond that. It's not like, well, the Bible's a good source, but let's look at some other sources too. That's not what it said. It says it is utterly complete. Uh, everything that you could possibly know is here in this book, it is complete. And oddly enough, if you add to it, you've now made it less complete. <laughs> Wonderful. I love that psalm. Uh, and, and there's something about that, I, I think, that, that's what I'm trying to do in my life, is to take you know, this idea of the word of God and to let people see who he is. There's a possibility of relationship. Absolutely magnificent. But I've got enough time for a fifth word. I'll just cram in one last one at the end. Uh, and we're using uh, Yahweh again, but this time <coughs> in a compound... Uh, Yahweh, um, the Lord of Hosts is how it's very often translated. Um, uh, so the name Yahweh can be used in compounds. Uh, and actually, fact, the most common one is Yahweh Elohim, the God of relationship who has all the power in his hands. You know, and they put the two together. And that's the most common compound, Yahweh Elohim. But um, this one is worth including. Uh, it's usually uh, used um, very often uh, when we have God and the rule of a warrior and you know, the Lord of Hosts, this kind of idea. <laughs> it's a very wide term. Um, but in actual fact, rather than just simply think there's the Lord of Hosts is in, or well, he's got a big army, which is sometimes how we think about it, or, you know, he's got a lot of angels at his disposal, which is another way <coughs> that people think of it, um, it. It's usually, it's better to understand it a little bit more than that. Um, it, it's better of understanding not just simply the Lord of Hosts, but the Lord of everything that has ever been made the Lord of of everything Lord of all uh, such as Psalm 84 everything that has been made he is Lord over he is, uh, is the God the relationship over but more than that he is Yahweh and not just for a specific group in a desert thousands of years ago he is Yahweh open to relationship for all that he has made um so, so my favourite rendering of this is by a German theologian called uh, Walter Eichrod um, who renders this, this word as uh, the Lord of all that exists in heaven and earth. <coughs> I can't beat that, so I'm just, <laughs> I'm just including that. You know. uh, I, think, I think that's an absolutely magnificent uh, way of describing this word. And worth putting up and it's very important because uh, he is not just the Yahweh for the Jews he's not just the Yahweh for the Israelites in the desert he is Yahweh for us now at the ends of the earth I mean I'm biased but I think that matters to me (laughs) so um, a conclusion and some homework possibly Uh, we'll we'll see how we get through so Let's apply some of this. Um, what difference does it make to Genesis 17 1 to 3? So, uh, here's some, some texts, um, and I've, I've kind of. I've kept the, 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 the names in, um, uh, as it were. And I've used this text because, you know, it uses quite a few of them in, in one go. Um, so, and when Abram was 90 years old, Yahweh, the person of God, appeared to Abram <coughs> and said to him, I am El Shaddai, walk before my face and be complete, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you greatly. And Abram fell on his face, and el him talked with him. Mm-hmm. Now... The author has not accidentally included lots of different names for God, or titles for God. Uh, The author has very carefully and specifically used a different title and the name at a different point because he is trying to convey something about the nature of God slightly differently and I've broken it down into the different lines as it were uh, in each line. Each has been chosen specifically to describe how a different facet of God applies to the needs of Abram at that moment. Now, I think that we are robbed (laughs) when we lose them in our reading, when it's just God. And my hope is that you're going to find yourself a little less deprived after this evening, as it were. But here's my question. What difference does it make? Now, I've I've, I've planned to have at least ten minutes to look at this. Okay, so I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not rushing you well I think I've spoken quite a lot um, what I want you to do is just for a couple of minutes so you'll feel free to look at other translations and various things that don't keep the name look at this, think with what I've said about each of those names what is the difference that it makes so what difference does it make when Abram's 99 year old in Yahweh appears to why is that different than just simply saying the Lord or God you know look at the next one, El Shaddai what does it make, why is that different now what about um, the, the, the Elohim why is that different so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you say 4 minutes or 5 minutes to talk to the person beside you, if you don't like the person beside you then hopefully find someone else reasonably near you, uh, not too big a group so you'll have a turn and genuinely think it through, think of what I've been saying about these terms and how that changes what you read, so say 5 minutes, ok over to you ok, I'm the Okay, so that, that was five minutes ago. That's very, very and, and, and I'm, I am And to be fair, I'm perfectly happy staying here for a very long time today. You know, I don't be keen to lock up, and, uh, you know, we're talking Hebrew, so I'm very, very happy. However, for the rest of you, I'll, I'll call you to order at work. So, uh, let's start with the first one. And when Abram was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to Abram. What difference does it make by, by, by including the name of God at this <laughs> He appeared to a person. Good. So we've got this personhood of God. What else? He's able to relate to him. Good. He's actually able to relate to Abraham. That's an important point. He knows you. There's a familiarity. I know the name of you. You're Ian. Do I know you? Yes. There there is this familiarity there. That is allowed, permissible and and indeed expected. Anything else? So this is different than any others. Yes, so he's distinctly different from anyone else. If it was just simply God, he could be with God. Mm. Ah, this is Yahweh. And when you see that name, you think, oh, hang on, I know him. I've seen him before. <coughs> I will see him after this, but I, 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 you know, as a reader, we can know him. Abraham can know him. Is there, a, is there an important thing coming first? So God has to choose which name comes first uh, and he's chosen the Yahweh to be the first one. Is that, is that important? The short answer is yes. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's more really, i you know, why might that be the most important thing, to, to, you know, first? Because it's the very name of God, it's his very essence. So yeah, I mean this is the very essence of God, the name of God comes first and... Sorry. A completeness. Oh yes, yeah. You got that, that you know, this, this completeness coming in. Do you recognise that it's him? Yeah. Uh, it? yeah. And when you take all of that, and there's much more. This is what we're grasping just now about God. <laughs> but when you take all of that, one of the main things that comes first is this idea of this is a God who wants a relationship. Everything that comes after this is because God has decided he is going to have a relationship with Abraham. Every promise, everything that happens after this is because he comes as Yahweh. He doesn't just simply come as the Mighty One. He comes as the God of relationship, as a person, as a knowable person. And that comes first. It always comes first. You look at the Ten Commandments. What comes first? I am Yahweh. That's at the very beginning. And then it continues. I am the one that rescued you. <laughs> ah, so who is he? This is who he is. This is what he's done. You know, he is Yahweh and his relationship is the one who has rescued you. you know, that's where we start. We start with him. We start with the relationship. And everything else flows from there. Same with us. Ah, see him. Be in a relationship with him. And everything else flows from there. That's the first one. Uh, what about this one? I am El Shaddai. I know I certainly ruined that for you, but don't <coughs> use it already. But we um, can show that you're paying attention at the very least. <laughs> what is the import in using El Shaddai there? He's the one who's going to make him complete, he's the one who's got the power. Brilliant. So, uh, the El Shaddai here is obviously very much linked to the idea of being complete, I mentioned earlier. By using El Shaddai here, and you've got to bear in mind this is God who does this. God says Yahweh first, God says El Shaddai next, I am El Shaddai. What's really beautiful is that by using that, he says, it is my intention to make it complete. By being El Shaddai. By pointing at this Part of his nature and character, he is saying, because I am El Shaddai, my intention is for you to be complete. So it's not even just that he is the way of becoming complete by by him using this at this point. He is trying to say, so I am Yahweh, I want a relationship with you. I am El Shaddai, I will make you complete. His intention is there. Um, and I will make my covenant between me and you and multiply you exceedingly so that's the, again that sense of blessing and, and that being poured out there's an in the, the shall die. you can see how all of that fits in with that title of God and why blameless kind of goes against the grain it's not about Abraham it's not about Abram being blameless it's about God it's about him uh, and so the, the last one, and Abram fell on his face, and Elohim talked to him. I find it really interesting that the almighty, powerful tongue of God comes last. <laughs> I got <throw> it So <laughs> you. That is someone who's very much secure in his power. <laughs> you know, it comes last. But what's the importance of it there, do you think? of underlying the fact at the very end, and this is the the author who who writes in the the Elohim, uh, what is important in just finishing off on that idea of the Almighty One? It will be the Almighty One to perform the miracles of Iqtah. Good. Good. He's not just simply saying this because, you know, he wants a relationship. He's not just simply saying this because he wishes a completeness. He's saying this because he can do it. Mm -hmm. And he will do it. And the wonderful <coughs> impact of that is to say, not just that God talked with them, but the almighty, first of all, deigns to come down and to speak to him again. But second of all, he underwrites the covenant. This is going to happen. Because he's not just these other two, he's also the other And that's the wonder of seeing the names in the text. Because quite often we just, read, you know, we just read over, you know, God or God Almighty, and it can be very easy to just kind of glance over, or, or the Lord in block capital letters. But when the names are brought through, and the specific component that those names are pointing to are brought through, the text makes a lot more sense. And so, as a starter, I thought that was a good place to start, to see that if you just see a little bit of the Hebrew, you actually see an awful lot more of the text and an awful lot more of God, which is the point. Um, hopefully you'll come to one of the other weeks I haven't scared you off uh, but as the weeks go on we're going to look at different texts and there's so much of the very nature of God which we grasp we just illuminate maybe a word or two so you've started off at five <laughs> hope you feel you know, edified and enlightened from that and I hope I'll see you at least at one of the other weeks as we go through some of the other words so thank you so much for coming Thank you.